once again we are back this is the most interesting topic in the room you know it i am jason uh you can call me j you can call me j to the v you can call me jv you can call me j to the virus uh this is my podcast and i am here with you again so you don't know jack you know, I really have a. I really enjoy coming up with the titles for these uh, little podcasts. You don't know Jack. Yeah, very. It's very cute. So this this t- topic of the day, the topic of the day is going to surround uh, Jack Kerouac, the author Jack Kerouac, and I have a long uh, abiding relationship with that uh, with that author and have been inspired to act in the world in a number of different directions based on based on his writings um and based on my perception of his writings my what i used to think his writings were about when i was a young man um i am now as a as i've grown older and i've re- read and reread and studied and learned more about the Jack Kerouac's life I have evolved very uh, I have evolved in my perception of his his work and of him as a person in the world and so we're going to talk about that a little bit today so one of the things that I, I find interesting and this is my own personal experience as well even today Jack Kerouac when there's films made documentaries I there's a documentary recently. It was a documentary with actors enacting things, and then uh, Johnny Depp was uh, giving some narration. And I didn't watch much of it. I just very quickly, it just seemed like, again, like here is another portrayal of uh, Jack Kerouac and On the Road and, and, and his friends, you know, Allen Ginsberg and Neil Cassidy and all these people in the in the milieu of the beat writers and the beat generation quote unquote uh, here's another uh, representation of of all of this from the perspective of uh, how cool they are you know the cool beatnik or uh, how inspiring Kerouac is from the point of view of being free and uh, a freedom-loving man uh, who who doesn't get bound up by the the uh, the strictures of society and in fact rejects them and doesn't work uh, you know doesn't get the suit and tie and gets in the car and races across the country and has adventures and it's just a free kind of a free and easy guy and and this uh it's a it's a myth this myth that is uh, continuing to be perpetuated even to today the perception in popular culture if you say Jack Kerouac you're gonna think if you know anything at all you're gonna think on the road and you're gonna think those things oh it's you know just about these guys that drove across the country and they, they got their kicks uh, you know, had exciting times and did what they wanted to do, and 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 they just rode around free, and uh, 
And then in the 90s, when uh, late 80s, early 90s, when uh, I was exposed to Jack Kerouac uh, right off the bat, it I had it was introduced to me in that way, and I I I I was unable to read on the road uh, uh, for a while. It took me a while to get through that. I uh, I tried I think three times, and I get a little farther each time. I just couldn't get through it because it was such an alien force the language and um i had to my brain had to grow more i think uh i don't think i was grown enough uh but you know having that experience of it hitting hitting my my brain pan over and over again just kind of slowly evolved things so but even before I finished reading it, I had this perception of it, you know, based on what my, my friends were saying and and this idea of this free person is like hit the road and go, you know, seek out America, seek out myself on the road and, you know, I mean, get my kicks and all these things. This is sort of this romantic myth uh, that was so attractive. It's so attractive to a young person. And, um, and as I, I moved forward, I, uh, I get, I got exposed to the book, the Dharma bums and that one, uh, it really takes that idea of being free and outside of society. And then it takes it to the forest, you know, get out in the mountains on the West coast and, hike and go out of the mountains and that was a very very attractive thing I that also influenced my my thinking that book I I believe I actually I believe I pushed through on the road uh finally though I didn't really like it uh but I wouldn't have told anyone that uh Dharma Bums when I read that uh it really spoke to me a whole lot more and I really got into it uh but again, it was really this the, sort of the, the myth, the myth of America, the myth that Jack Kerouac wrote. Uh, and it's, a, it's a, another in a long line of our, our cultural look to the West um, being free. I mean, the, the, there's no question from the moment the English colonists uh, hit the shores of North America that, you know, very, right at that point, they're carving out, uh, to moving very slowly to the West. You know, they're carving out a, a little nook. And from that point forward, there was that movement West. And uh, to the great detriment of the native peoples, the First Nations, the Native Americans, the the uh, American Indians, over time, the great uh, the great genocide, and the pushing out of of the native peoples from the land, uh, as we continued to, our ancestors moved west, there was that. Uh, that draw, that that feeling of expansiveness, and you know, we have, looking west, and if you if you keep moving into the continent, moving in inward, there's free land, quote unquote, free land for the taking, if you can improve it, uh, improving being farming, of course, uh, make it productive, put it into the uh, the monetary system, monetize it, make money. 
take over take over the land but there's a underlying the the reality of that where there's you know a lot of pain and blood and sorrow and hard hardships of settlers and all the stuff that goes on underneath all of that is the myth the myth of america and the myth of freedom and moving moving toward the setting sun um Kerouac takes that and uh, amplifies it for uh, the 20th century. Uh, we, uh, we get cars involved in this thing. And uh, as, uh, as, you, as they're uh, particularly on the road, one of the things that's remarkable to think about is that at that point, the book is when the book is written, it's in the late forties. It's after just after the war. And, uh, they get these cars and they're driving across the country and they can just, they're going straight across. They're not sleeping. Uh, typically, I'm sure they're, well, not sure. They're, they're taking Benzedrine, uh, you know, uppers and speed. They're like keeping themselves awake and they're going and they're going all the way across in one shot. No sleeping. And I you know, think about that, like that's the fastest that humans are moving uh, themselves across the country up to that point and they're doing that with no particular purpose in mind i mean that's really what ultimately the the concept of on the road is it's the retelling of the experiences of jack kerouac and neil Casty driving across the country back and forth a few times but ultimately they're they're it's not about the destination. The destination is what sets them off. All right, we're going to go to San Francisco or we're going to Denver or wherever we're going. We're going to the, wherever this next thing is and we're going. And they go. But really the point is, is the going. Being on the road, being in the vehicle and, and moving, you know, constant movement. And that uh, the world that exists in that space inside the car and the experiences that occur inside the car, the conversation and the, the, the random happenstances that go on as you cross the country and interact with people. And, and you're not tied to any of the communities that you stop in along the way. And in those communities, the people that live there, that is, that is where they are. They're, they're essentially rooted. They're rooted in a sense. They're there. But, the, but in the car, you're moving. You're, you're constantly moving. You're just dipping a toe in and you're just scraping by, by a place, you know, and going, going, going. Uh, that was a very appealing idea to, to me, that sense of, uh, get in the car and, and go all the way to wherever you're going and you don't sleep, uh, until you get there. And I, I engaged in that, uh, and, and so, so let me just take one step back because this myth uh, that gets written about this freedom uh, and looking west. What's very interesting is that in the 60s, uh, once Kerouac, Kerouac got really big, he, he, he published finally in 1957. Now, he'd been writing since the late 40s, and he'd had his first book published in the late 40s. It was a, uh, uh, based on uh, the style of Thomas Wolfe, uh, and it was, you know, he's trying to write the great American novel. 
and he gets published and he gets a big, you know, he gets some press and he gets some stuff and he gets some money. And then he doesn't, it doesn't carry through after that. You know, he thinks he's, he's made it. This is it. He's going to be a writer. He's a writer. He's going to be a writer for, you know, and, and live the literary life. And that doesn't happen. And he's very disillusioned by that. But uh, he continues to write in the meantime. So over the course of, you know, the next eight years or something, he's writing nonstop and he's trying to get these books published. He writes like seven books that he can't get published because he just finally, he just gives up on the, the, the form that had existed and he creates his own style essentially, uh, which is more free form. And, uh, it is an more of an artistic expression on the page with the underlying inspiration being bebop jazz, uh, he and his compatriots uh, were on the scene when bebop broke out in new york city and they were in those clubs and seeing uh charlie parker and dizzy gillespie right when it was happening uh up in harlem and it blew their minds absolutely blew their minds this free flowing style of jazz it was unlike anything that had occurred before and as i stated in my alternative music <laughs> diatribe you know the bop came out this is one of the results jack kerouac starts to uh try to write in a style that is like a jazz saxophone solo so it's not publishable <laughs> because it's just, it's totally new and nobody understands what the hell he's doing. Anyway, so 1957, On the Road gets published and it just breaks open. And he, and he suddenly becomes focal point of the media for the beat generation, quote unquote beat generation, and all these artists and poets and writers that were his friends and you know acquaintances and enemies and all these people that had been you know rubbing up against each other and writing in this new style they that underground suddenly is just exposed bam it's huge and from that moment forward there you get the media starting to spin an, a, a version of Jack Kerouac that isn't the man himself. And into the 60s, especially with Dharma Bums, but Dharma Bums on the road, when the hippies break out, um, the, his writings had been very inspirational to a lot of young people in that next uh, decade. Now, Kerouac and all these guys are born in the 20s. I think he's born in 1922. So he's entirely of the world war ii generation he's the, he's like the he's a parent a parent's age of the hippies of the baby boom generation but this generation a lot of people are, are reading this and the uh you know freedom of the road and uh get out in the mountains and get real natural and the whole beatnik uh formulation uh that was concocted by the media in the 50s that's this thing this this mythological lifestyle gets assumed by a lot of people 
and they take it on and they start to live in this way that they think is authentic, more authentic than the the life of a of a square man. <laughs> Their parents, you know, working the working stiffs. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna follow the beatniks. We're gonna we're gonna live the life of free Americans. We're gonna live a, a real life. We're gonna get out there on the road, and we're just gonna do this thing. This idea that he, you know, he's freedom loving and running around. If you read on the road, it's funny. I've read on the road a number of times over the years, and it's as I've aged and gained my own experience. Every time I read these books, but particularly on the road, it comes out differently for me. And the last time I read it, the last couple times, the last time I read it, I was really, it's really clear. This is not a book about, uh, it is a book about seeking freedom in a way, but these people are not happy, you know, they're, they're struggling with uh, centerlessness, they're struggling with a a lack of uh, a sense of what the point of it all is, what is the point of being alive with all of with everything that's going on around us you know we've got all these people doing all this stuff and jobs and all these things and here we are and we don't fit in and we're not appreciated you know like i'm an i'm an author who's written seven books and i can't get published they don't understand me you know so there's that sense of being a a misunderstood you know misanthrope basically so you're just out there doing doing his thing and uh, trying to find some meaning. And I think that the ultimate the, the meaning that he thought he was seeking was to get published and to become f- famous in the sense, I guess, of being accepted as a legitimate author who could live off of his works and be appreciated. Now, <coughs> when he actually breaks with On the Road, it, it turns on him real fast. <laughs> oh, man, you got to be careful what you wish for. Another example. There's so many examples of people who become famous, become known, and uh, they've been seeking that. And the reality of that situation is that you are suddenly under a microscope. And yeah, people know who you are. But if you think that you're going to get respect and you're going to be appreciated um, and that you're going to be actualized, like that, that sense of, uh, you know, he's, Kerouac particularly is one of these cats who he's he's missing something in his life and he's not happy and he and he thinks this is going to be the answer and when he gets it he realizes very quickly that it's the opposite of the answer he's known the critics hate him he is just hated on he's denigrated he's then he's but he's known and so then he gets notoriety suddenly there are people who want to hang out with him there's all these people who want to drink with him that's another part of course with Jack Kerouac he was a big, big drinker and very obviously was an alcoholic at a certain point. I mean, even, you know, I, I would I believe that even before On the Road Broke, he was already alcoholic. But after that, he really goes off the deep end. 
it is not a good situation for him to be uh, to be uh, known and to, suddenly he's got money and people want to be his friend but they don't people want to beat him up and you know i mean he gets beat up and and he's he's a he's a challenging guy anyway so he's not backing down from people but he's also not actually a fighter even though he's like this big guy who was a big good really good football player you know good enough that he got a scholarship to play football at Columbia and he could have just gone on with that but that just wasn't a scene he wound up dropping out but his physical you know stature in the world people you know people just they think he's going to be tough and they're that he's going to look for the fight or whatever and you know he he, he had some run-ins with some bad characters because he was known and <clears throat> Ultimately, to not get the appreciation from critics and other writers really cut him deeply, and that shows that sensitivity. So here's this guy who uh, he basically self-destructs over the next uh, 10 years, and uh, he continues to write, but... I mean, I would say the Dharma Bums is the one book that really stands out as a true romanticization of what happened and who he was. Because overall, it's a very hopeful book and it ends on a hopeful note. Um, it, It really describes, and I think it has a lot to do with, this book has a lot to do with his friendship with Gary Snyder, the poet and uh, the Buddhist. And he's, he's a, you know, he's, He's into Zen Buddhism and Eastern the Eastern philosophy, and um, grew up in uh, the Pacific Northwest, and was a came out of a logging family, and he did logging, and he did uh, fire lookouts up in the mountains. And uh, you know, he, he'd spend the summer being a fire lookout in a cabin up on top of a mountain, and he really inspired Kerouac. And the book really comes out, I think, as a you know, as a testament to that admiration that he had even though Kerouac and Kerouac was attracted to Buddhism but the way that he writes in that book and when he writes it, it's really this weird convoluted version of it and I would really doubt that the portrayal of Gary Snyder is accurate in that book um, I think uh, I think some liberties were taken where it was just Jack's perspective, you know, of things. But, and that really is where a lot of the hippies grab uh, their vision from. This, uh, this character of, uh, I mean, Jack Kerouac's character, but also particularly the character of Jaffe Ryder, who is the, uh, the stand-in for Gary Snyder. <clears throat> that is, uh, that, that, it really is a blueprint for hippiness. So you have a a vision of uh, the myth of the of Jack Kerouac, you which carries off into the universe and gets all twisted up, and ultimately, in and of itself, becomes like a, a downfall of the man himself. the The myth kills the actual guy. He, uh, and in the 60s, he he got, with his alcoholism, he really submerged himself and, and bathed himself in alcohol. 
he didn't like any of the notoriety. He didn't want to be the spokesperson for anything. Uh, he didn't want to, you know, not speaking for anybody at all. And the hippies were, you know, holding him up and some, you know, as some, you know, God of some sort of theirs. And he did not like the hippies. He did not like them at all. He absolved himself completely of being responsible for any of it. Uh, there is a there is a, a an almost heartbreaking interview that he does on William Buckley's firing line. I think that's 1968, and uh, he's obviously incredibly intoxicated. He's uh, abusive to the other guests, and he is uh, he's he's just he's coherent and at moments, but uh, it's a sad thing. And Ed Sanders is on there. He was uh, a a known. Uh, hippie in the day, an activist, uh, author, and um, he is, you know, there's a moment, I think, where he tries to, you know, make the connection with Jack, but uh, Jack just, he just is, uh, he's kind of got some repellent behavior going on, um, but he did not uh, want to be responsible for any of that, and he he rejected he rejected the hippies. He rejected the youth of the '60s and the entire movement. He was very pro America, and kind of turned tail from a lot of the beliefs that he had expressed when he was a young man, as many people do. And so there is then a stereotype that he is saddled with. And, uh, and is considered responsible for, even though he did he denies that, and and that from that moment up through today, that is the paradigm. Quite honestly, that is what a a, a beatnik is. This uh, sort of a it's a stare. It's it's really just a stereotype of an image that was created and concocted by the media. And a lot of you know there were movies that got made in the late fifties. And they just take the stereotype that that they had created themselves and put them in a movie, and you know they're they're just like they're playing bongos and they're wearing berets and they're like they're uh, spouting poetry and doing all this weird stuff, and that really didn't have much to do with what uh, the reality of these artists and writers had experienced. You know, they, they were they were just people trying their best to create what they felt was an honest creative um you know literature and really you know with the foundation that they believed that writing about their own lives uh was an avenue toward truth getting to the truthful experiences getting uh you know, you're taking fiction, but you're trying to find a way to write about pain and suffering and uh, joy and all of these different things like real life. So a lot of the stories, especially, I mean, Kerouac takes experiences that he had and the people that he knew and he changed their names and he wrote basically what happened, except that he fictionalized it. And if you dig deep enough and, and, you know, listen to interviews and whatever, hear the other people of this group talk about it, you will know that he, he romanticized a lot of things and he changed a lot of things. But fundamentally, it was based on true-to-life events. And that was 
Allen Ginsberg with his poetry, uh, a lot of what he was writing, if you, you Howell uh, and Kaddish are, you know, two of his most famous uh, works, and they are derived from all kinds of real experiences. Kaddish is about his mother uh, after uh, she had died, and so there's a lot of her in that, and experiences that he had, and, and emotions around her, and uh, Howell is a picture of all the people in in the scene, all these friends and people that are running around in New York, uh, and it is a in some in some ways a list of events and people that some really terrible things uh, are described in there uh, but it is as true to life as uh, Ginsburg could make it and in even more so very raw it is a it is it is a howl for certain um, it's an outstanding piece of work <laughs> that I love to to listen to uh, I was lucky enough to actually see Allen Ginsberg in, in uh, I believe it was 1993, and that was a very powerful experience. There's nothing like having the man himself uh, throw Howl in your face, especially the way he did it in the 90s. It was very different than what he did in the 50s. Anyway, I want to talk a little bit about uh, m now that I have learned more over time uh, a bit more of the reality of what was going on that uh, that these folks were trying to to capture, and the first place to start is with the very first beat book that was published. Uh, that was John Clellan Holmes' book called Go, and uh, it, there's a little. I'm just going to read a little, a uh, couple paragraphs here. I, I think it's. One of the most important parts of the book, it describes uh, young people during World War II in a way that I had never heard described. You just hear the greatest generation, the you know the the World War II generation. They they did what they had to do, and they they won the war, and then came home and they lived the American dream to its fullest. But I always wondered, as I was, you know, digging into the beats and reading Kerouac, like, why are these people so, why, why are they, you know, like, why are they outside of the system? I mean, on the one hand, I always understood, foundationally, it was because of the nuclear bomb the 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 use of it the existence of it and the threat of the soviet uh the soviet union against the united states the initiation of the cold war the fact that there existed weapons in the world that could destroy everyone that really altered the 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 rules of the game for these people the you know these are young people in the world and and uh, a lot of the beats, because of that, felt that uh, they needed they 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 could not play the game. If this is what our government is up to, and this is where we're heading, uh, then being complicit in that means just going about your business and getting your job and keeping your head down. 
and not paying any attention to it and just hoping for the best. Uh, they didn't want to do that. They felt that if if everybody was going to be incinerated at some point, they should live life to its fullest. That's kind of one of the foundations. But this passage from Go is very interesting because it lays down that foundation of this uh, the beat aspect. Why? What's the why beat? What is this? It's it's not like beatnik is kind of a, a word that that assumes subsumes the reality of what the word beat means and what Jack Kerouac meant by the word beat. So in the book uh, Go, John Clellan Holmes, it, it's just like Kerouac. Uh, it's all about real people with the names changed, and he is writing about himself and his wife. And uh, when they're getting together, when they're young people around when the, the during the war, and uh, and and this is this is what he has to say. So, and opposite, you know, and as, so the parent they're going to talking about getting married, and his parents aren't into it. Um, nevertheless, quote. Nevertheless, they were married on his leave after boot camp and spent a lonely, passionate weekend in a New York hotel, all they had for a honeymoon. She followed him to San Diego when he was put into the hospital corps. She lived in a furnished room and worked in a department store. It was the first time she'd been away from home, and it was like a sudden plunge into someone else's nightmare. The grueling monotony of the five-day bus trip across the country gave way to a friendless existence in the overcrowded California city, an existence punctuated only by fleeting weekends when they built the mutual fantasy of love to shore against the horror of reality. But they could not be insensitive to the wartime chaos into which they had been thrown. All around them were the Midwestern waitresses and secretaries who had come by bus or train to see their men shipped out after a few wild days of reunion and who had stayed on hopelessly, earning enough to live but not to get back home. The teeming streets at night when hungers and loneliness reduced small-town, decent boys to vandals. The abandon that seized all these young people who'd been torn up at the roots, regimented, shunted back and forth across the nighttime wilderness of a nation at war, intimidated by shore patrols, jacked-up prices, and annoyed civilians, who searched in bars and movie balconies and dead-end streets for home and love, and failing to find them, forgot. Finally, Hobbs was sent back east to be permanently stationed in a naval hospital outside New York. Catherine got a room on West 95th Street, and his last year in the Navy was spent there and on duty. When he was discharged at last, and the pattern of lovemaking and confession wedged between arrival and departure had ended, neither was prepared for that continuousness of marriage the war had made it impossible. The pace they had so delicately worked out failed them. Theirs was like a shipboard romance, carried on beyond docking against all custom and advice. Without the heightened excitement of possible doom into which it had been born, it seemed oddly centerless. I was really moved by that when I read that originally. And it, it's a section that really stands out in that book because the rest of that book is really about them running around in New York and this whole scene with the beats. And it's, it's not a, it's not a pretty picture. Ultimately, uh, there's a lot of, uh, sadness and, uh, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot, they're having a lot of problems, these two, but, uh, but that particularly really jumped out at me to, to think about 
the World War II generation as young people and what that was like in the country if you, you know, young men being drafted or mostly joining up and, uh, you know, racing off to basic training and then getting shipped out to war. Yeah, I hadn't really considered this. What happens? All these young ladies, you know, everybody's falling in love and they're getting all excited. And that sense of drama and excitement and you, 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 you know, they, as it was said there, all these Midwestern women really, going to California, going with these men, and then they get shipped off, and then they stay on, and they can't get home, and have any money, and they just work, and they stay there, and the men come back for leave if they make it, and it just goes on and on, and you have a generation, ultimately, in a sense, that gets uprooted, and that uprootedness is the keystone to a lot of Kerouac's work, particularly on the road, that sense of movement always going it's the road itself it's the motion it's the forward momentum it's the experience inside the vehicle that is entirely symbolic of what Colin Holmes was writing about uh, it is a, a centerlessness that uh, this group of people in particular these artists who are reflecting the society around them they aren't joining in they're feeling uh, as as if they're outsiders they're acting as outsiders and they are documenting all of all of this world that does not fall into the the paradigm of uh, the what is expected American expectations for citizens in the culture they are outside of it and and really that's the foundation of what I believe is the true Kerouac, not the myth that has been carried forward to today. But then there's me in the world in the 90s, and I am taking in the myth. Now, I love everything that I've been talking about. I'm very excited about, obviously. But what I find especially interesting is that take the myth. The myth itself drove me forward and got me to act in the world. Now, whether or not it's uh, the impulses are derived from the, the what I perceived as the truth, I was pushed toward my own truth. I, while I thought it was cool, quote unquote, cool to get in the car and drive across the country, uh, nonstop and enact this ritual, essentially, of what my friends and I perceived to be something authentic, uh, like the hippies did in the 60s, quite honestly, um, except we were a bunch of middle middle class kids who had, you know, money in our pockets, and we weren't, uh, we weren't thumbing around or doing any of those things. We weren't enacting it in any real way, the way that uh, was the real life of Kerouac being uh, poor on the road uh, and scraping by and stealing gas and things. No, but we were going. We were, we were going on the go. Drive the car. Get in the car. Drive all night. And what happens? What happens is there's two very specific trips across the country. And what happens is life altering. And, you know, 
these books and these ideas lead to action. And the action is, number one, driving to, uh, driving to Utah on the way to Joshua Tree, but driving all night long from the Midwest in Kansas when the sun is rising, having been in this crazy environment of the vehicle in the darkness all night long, and the sun is suddenly rising, and there's pink in the sky. And from the flatness of Kansas, there is the first view of the Rocky Mountains. And that completely altered my course in life. Uh, that vision was so powerful, it was an immediate reaction of, I must live in the mountains. I must move west. So... The myth, uh, the myth enacted, uh, and it took it took a number of years, but that moment was was blazed into my soul, and I had to make that a truism. I had to do that, and I did that. The other thing is that the the Gary Snyder character and uh, the Dharma Bombs piece leads to the the desire toward being in the mountains getting onto the trail getting up into the getting up into the high areas and the the rarefied air and being a part of nature it's it's so <laughs> it's such a throwback to the 60s and yet it's it's not because it's just the the continuation of this this idea these these ideas these books moving forward through through the generations and I, I, I found the, the drive from the Dharma bums, again, going out west, these trips across the country, these all-night trips that take like 36 hours straight, the goal was to reach a place in the mountains to go hiking, to go camping. And um, one of them was to Joshua Tree, and that was uh, in a foundational experience. Obviously, the the on the road part was incredible, but the Dharma bums in the in the in the desert was even more powerful. Being out in Joshua Tree, camping, hiking around, uh, getting up high in the in the rocks, and sitting and and observing the land and watching the land change over the course of the day as the light moved across the sky, very foundational, powerful, soul-stirring experiences. Uh, it, it drives an entirely new direction in life. I would say, uh, from my perspective, who I was, I was essentially directionless, did not know what direction to head in, but here, these experiences start to point, move the pointer in a very particular direction, and it's not not being driven toward a career or anything, but toward the experience of life to find the 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 most real experience that I can, and to essentially what occurs because of your being out in nature is you're you're becoming grounded. And becoming a grounded person, essentially, in my experience, is what has allowed me to make 
uh, clearer choices and to find a path forward. And the path is never straight, my friends. Uh, as we all know, that path, uh, you just stay on it, but uh, it zigs and zags around and it's, it's quite the, the wild ride. You just don't know what's coming around the next corner. But like hiking, uh, you have a little faith and you move forward. So something I, I want to offer from the Dharma Bums, it's a, it's a passage that uh, drove us forward, uh, my friends and I, and we would read this and get excited by this. And this is one of the, the things, one of the, one of the passages that, uh, that leads to action. So this passage is from the Dharma Bums. And uh, just to set it up real quick, the, uh, the uh, Kerouac and uh, Gary Snyder and uh, another gentleman have driven up to the mountains and hiked into the Sierra Nevada and they've spent the night and now they're going up this mountain, um, not mountain climbing, but hiking up. And um, it becomes just uh, the two of them, Gary Snyder and Jack Kerouac, and they're going up. Um, and it's, and so the, the character's name is Jaffe Ryder. That is Gary Snyder. <laughs> um, Jack has reached a certain place and he's gotten frightened. They're going up very high. The trail's getting thinner. He feels like he's going to stumble and fall off the mountain and he's terrified. And so he's wedged himself into this little nook and he's freaked out. Um, and, uh, Gary has continued up to the top of the mountain and is celebrating at the top of the mountain and, and Jack is kind of waving at him in terror and he's, he's just in mortal terror. And then, quote, Then suddenly everything was just like jazz. It happened in one insane second or so. I looked up and saw Jaffe running down the mountain in huge 20-foot leaps, running, leaping, landing with a great drive of his booted heels bouncing five feet or so, running, then taking another long crazy, yelling, yodeling, sail down the sides of the world and into that flash, I realized it's impossible to fall off mountains, you fool. And with a yodel of my own, I suddenly got up and began running down the mountain after him, doing exactly the same huge leaps, the same fantastic runs and jumps. And in the space of about five minutes, I guess Jaffe Ryder and I, in my sneakers, driving the heels of my sneakers right into the sand, rock boulders. I didn't care anymore. I was so anxious to get down out of there. Came leaping and yelling like mountain goats, or I'd say like Chinese lunatics of a thousand years ago. Enough to raise the hair on the head of the meditating Morley by the lake, who said he looked up and saw us flying down and couldn't believe it. In fact, with one of my greatest leaps and loudest screams of joy, I came flying right down to the edge of the lake and dug my sneaker heels into the mud and just fell sitting there glad. Jaffe was already taking his shoes off and pouring sand and pebbles out. It was great. I took off my sneakers and poured out a couple buckets of lava dust and said, ah, Jaffe, you taught me the final lesson of them all. You can't fall off a mountain. So this, this paragraph, these words, it's, it's an incredible thing. Uh, my, my little crowd of people were, were inspired by that and uh, driven to, to go out into the mountains ourselves. And um, there's just something really powerful about, about that, uh, 
that moment of humanness, this fearful man stuck on the side of a mountain, you know, he's just, a, he's in mortal terror for his life. And, and then suddenly the, the shock of awareness uh, hits him and he, he realizes that he's, he's more, he can be more than that. He can become uh, more than his fear and, and be joyful and, um, and grow and be something more than he ever dreamed. And, you know, just like running down the mountain and being free like a child, uh, that was very inspiring to myself and my friends, and it uh, is it drove us out to get out and do something ourselves. It's kind of an amazing thing. Um, just a, a paragraph of words, and the next thing you know, I am on a trail on the mountain and, and getting up on, on a high place and thinking that you can't fall off a mountain. And in fact, that's one of the things I still think almost every time I go hiking, you can't fall off a mountain. Now, I don't mountain climb. So <laughs> I think there's, there's cases where you could fall off a mountain. But I think in the most basic sense, the idea is, it's all in your head, my friends. So we have these, you have this, I think what's interesting, you know, as I've been doing this podcast is that, you know, I in my contemporary sense, I've become aware of more of the reality of what Kerouac is writing and what uh, what the beats were writing. And uh, at the in the past, I only saw the joy. I only saw the excitement because uh, that's kind of all I really wanted to see. But now I'm seeing a more full spectrum of what these books are about, and it's you know they're they're about sadness and sorrow and uh, the difficulties of life and fear. Uh, you know the word beat to be defined uh, means someone who's beaten down by the world but who still has a sense of pride in themselves uh, they might not fit in with the paradigm of what other people are doing or, or what you're supposed to be doing but you, know, you still are a human being and you still have pride in, in who you are and um, and in Kerouac he was uh, he chose to be poor in a sense um, and traveled uh, amongst a lot of homeless people and uh, there's a lot of homeless people in his books and you get this sense of the world, uh, post-World War world with these people who are lost out in the world. And so you have a picture of people who are on the margins um, but, uh, but and they're beat, they're beat. <laughs> But the myth is uh, intoxicating, and the myth is what drove my my life forward in a lot of ways. I, I don't want to make it sound bad that necessarily that this other than in the reality of you know the myth destroys the man uh, you know while he's alive. But what happened to all of the these people in the '60s who were inspired by this? What happened to myself and my friends? We we wound up going, uh, being inspired by these words and by these ideas and by this, uh, you know, what it, what is a myth? It doesn't really matter, I suppose. Uh, it's really what matters is the what it drove us to. We enacted a myth in our own lives and made it a reality and and created real real experiences. You know, the Dharma bombs ends with Kerouac going up to desolation peak in washington state to be a fire lookout for the summer and you know the next thing you know i have gone two different trips to desolation peak and hiked up that thing and 
gotten up there and seen that cabin and hung out and seen the, seen the world that was described in the words of the book and made it a real thing. And, and now I, I have that. I can see that in my mind's eye uh, all around. And it's, it's an incredible thing to, to grab a hold of uh, life by the horns. That seems to be what the, the myth drove me to. And, um, and I suppose that that is what is the most important thing. Uh, on the one hand, I want to understand this, uh, this writer. I want to understand the reality of the world that he was living in and why uh, the, the books came out the way they did. And I see that a whole lot more clearly because I have more experience and some, uh, some reference points in my own life. But at the same time, that joyfulness of, of youth and the uh, the willfulness of youth, getting out there and just seeing the good, just seeing the pieces that I wanted to see, well, that actually uh, led to some extremely important experiences. And the next thing you know, all of this life unfolded because of some words on a page that some guy wrote. <laughs> uh, life is something else, I tell you. I think... That's the most important thing, just getting out there and living and doing something, being present and uh, being inspired. Uh, we're here, and it's short. It's a short trip. Get on that road. Get going. See something. I I can't think of a, a better way to have spent uh, spent some time in my youth to see the country. Be inspired and get out, see America, see this land that's all around us and see the people in it. Be, uh, you know, enact that myth a little bit, get out there and uh, experience the, the vision of the car, being inside that vehicle and going, 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 seeing people along the way and, and the world that they're rooted in and move on to the next one. But um, I don't know. It's a pretty incredible thing. So. I I do want to say this I, I you know I, I'm inspired by Dharma bumps to get on the trail and here we are times have changed I don't know how much Kerouac influences people anymore but I was reading that there's a whole lot of people getting out on the trails and they're getting up there they're going to the mountains and there's more people than ever doing that and it's kind of a sudden thing why is this happening and they speculate that it's because of uh, the book that Cheryl Strayed wrote called Wild that uh, details her experience of going on the Pacific Crest Trail and hiking that and her life and all the traumas and tribulations that she went through and why that pushed her out on the trail. And now people are reading that and they're becoming inspired and they're getting out on the trail. So, you know, whatever is whatever is real for you, whatever you experience, I mean, that's that's a great thing to be inspired, to get to the point where you're inspired to to change your life or to ex try something new that you didn't think you could ever do or that you didn't even know existed. I love that. I absolutely love that. And I love the beats and I will continue to reread Kerouac. <laughs> and I'm sure that as I grow older, it'll evolve even more. But for the time being, that is my topic. And I want to leave you with this. This last paragraph from On the Road, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a favorite thing. And I think it, uh, it's a good way to close, good way to end things. And uh, so here we go. Quote, 
So, in America, when the sun goes down and I sit on the old broken-down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey, and sense all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge over to the west coast, and all that road going, all the people dreaming and the immensity of it, and in Iowa, I know by now the children must be crying in the land where they let the children cry, and tonight the stars will be out, and don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? The evening star the evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkler dims on the prairie, which is just before the coming of complete night, that blesses the earth, darkens all rivers, cups the peaks, and folds the final shore in. And nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. The forlorn rags of growing old. That says it all, man. So, I leave you with that, America. <laughs> I uh, I wish everyone the best, and I uh, hope that uh, you take care of yourselves, and you take care of your families, and you take care of your community, and you take care of the people around you. There really isn't anything more to do. We're here, and uh, and there's, there's whatever reason there is for it, uh, I think it's kind of a personal thing. You are. It's good to know why you're here. Um, and I think the key is, uh, you're here, you're here to do something. So let's get out there and do something. And if possible, do something good. <laughs>